Okay, thank you very much for your film. Disturbing uh, film, I think. You're really shifting in perspective here on the greatest hero of our age, Nelson Mandela, no less. Um, in a way, you're seeing many of the things which go wrong now already started in his age, Mandela time. Um, you must have been fantasizing about his response, but do you think he would tell you? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know, but uh, what would you like him to say? I've never thought about it actually. So, actually I don't know. I don't know, it's, a, it's an abstract question. Um, and whatever I say, Preposterous in a way, yeah. yes. Um, but there are some people inside who give a perspective why reconciliation is necessary to help the sex and so on. But didn't you, couldn't you find somebody who really spoke up for his decisions in the 1990s? I think, you know, I think what has happened is that, you know, one of the things I was struggling with is that. You know, it's um, you have this iconic figure. You have a real human being who has spent so many years in prison, not himself alone, with other people. Um, a symbol of the struggle against apartheid, and humanity, and justice. And you have a family that parents, grandparents, who didn't go through the same sacrifices. So you've got a, a little bit of guilt even trying to question someone like Nelson Mandela because your own family um, didn't go through the same process. I didn't have family in Robben Island, I didn't have family in prison. Um, but I think the great thing about making a document about Nelson Mandela is that his ideas are universal, they're well known. Um, but what I wanted to do was, I think that as a black South African, as a black person, you understand the intentions behind the man, and you understand what he was trying to do. The question then becomes, have the intentions, or his intentions, and the intentions of the ANC at that moment, uh, that supported him, have they have they given fruit uh, to some kind of positive outcome in South Africa today? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether good intentions always pay off. I'm not sure even that whether good ideology or being a great human being or being a great politician in this case or being a great statesman has paid off when you look at South Africa. Um, because there was a certain naivety, and the naivety is, and this is my own personal perspective, that when you reach out to someone and you say, I know you've done this in the past, but I know that deep inside you, you're a human being, you can find yourself, you can find your inner self. What happens when that person does not respond? What happens when that person doesn't care about finding their own humanity? You know, because it's not just about goodwill, it's about capital also. It's about money, it's about economics, it's about greed. 
just so apartheid is not just immoral. You know, that's just one part of it. But it's also about capital, it's about privilege, and what they come to call in South Africa now white privilege. You know, so when you deal so when you are dealing with that, it can't only be a moral question. It has to be a question on a different layers. But also, I think great leadership takes the side of the marginalized and the poor. Always. And I think strategically, from Nelson Mandela's side, there was an era where he sort of spent his time to trying to minority, minority South African, white South Africans, find yourself why you should have spent more time with poor black South Africans who have gone through apartheid. That, that's just my point of view. Yes. So you, you more or less suggest that he was captured after uh, 94, especially by, by the whites and by the Western admirers. No, capture is, is a terrible word, and we're using it in South Africa at the moment. It's a terrible word because I don't think, I think he had seen, you know, there's a historical thing to when he came into power also, in terms of the continent, in terms of what's happening in the world. And I think at that moment, he thought practically was the best decision for the country. But don't you think there were very good reasons for him to, to think that at that time? I'm not, I'm not denying those good reasons. I'm just saying that uh, the wretched of the earth to steal from Fenon, that occupation or preoccupation with poor people, with people who have gone through colonialism, apartheid, people who are poor, who have been jailed, who have been killed, that should be a preoccupation of great leadership. That, that's, what, that's my only disagreement, that your preoccupation should not be the minority or the elite or those who perpetrated because you should spend more time. You should have spent more time instead of going to visit, and this is factual, you know, the, the widows of apartheid uh, leaders. You should have gone and spent time with the women like Chattik and etc. I know what you have gone through. I understand your pain. You know, so you shift the perspective still from Itfa that the perspective has to be completely different. And there's an obsession in South Africa and during that time, even today, with white South Africans, as if they are under threat of some kind, which is not true. It's a historical, it's not factual, it's not all those kind of things. And, and I'm not saying that they should be punished and do all those kind of things. I'm not, that's not where I'm going. But I'm saying the occupation, or the preoccupation, when people have gone through a system like apartheid, has to be those, and the sympathy, and the understanding, and the discussion, and the dialogue has to be uh, of those people who have gone through apartheid. So the changes that are actually the raison d'etre, the reason why the ANC was, uh, exists in any, in any case, were, were not met in those first years, uh, when the ANC was in power, and Mandela was there. And what happened after that? The promise was never taken up again? You know, I, I'm also aware of filmmakers being like political and economic so, you know, experts, so I'm not going to do that. Because I'm not an expert, I'm just saying, like a citizen. And it's a, it's, a, it's a view of a citizen rather than of an expert. So I'm cautious about answering questions of what should have happened. And, I mean, I think it's always complex. And it's easy for me also to say this, what should have happened. 
Um, but of course, there are different factors of, of why the country is where it is today. The question which I find interesting is why would people who have gone, who have been arrested, I think Jacob Zuma was arrested when he was 14 or something like that, don't quote me on this, but he was arrested when he was very young and spent 10 years or something in prison. And, yeah, and there are lots of people who have been to prison, who have been assassinated, who refused to give up their friends, who were tortured, who have, you know, families assassinated. Why would people who have gone through that, who have resisted all, most of them, all sorts of temptations, who are prepared to die, would in post apartheid South Africa be prepared to take 10 million rands and tarnish all their legacies, all their commitment, all those kind of things? It's a question I'm asking to myself all the time. And of course, I have, it's a rhetorical question because I sort of. Yeah, yeah, but I also sort of have an answer, but I don't have an answer. But the thing about it is that when you, I think when you construct a society and this, the construction is based on moral or religious, like Tutu, you know, like Archbishop Desmond Tutu with all Jewish respect, I think that's only one part of it. And I think you pay the price when you're occupied, when your occupation is a moral question. Because people leave, like this lady says that he, she, she says I'm not a member of parliament. She says I'm flesh. So, so, so somehow you have to deal with those intellectual questions, moral questions, spiritual questions if you're very spiritual. But also you have to deal with bread and butter issues. You have to deal with questions of land. You have to deal with questions of minerals. Who owns what? What happens to those communities that were exploited, removed from their land by apartheid? What happens, because that's what you see. I live in Cape Town, and you see that, you know, this inequality, and you know that most of this inequality is through theft. There's no, there's no doubt about it. That most South Africans, most white South Africans, are where they are on the Forbes 100 wealthiest people, not because they're geniuses, most of them, but simply because there's an apartheid system that afforded them opportunities. So the issue then becomes, as a leader who comes into power, even if you have seen other examples, let's say they, they normally say, or oh, Mandela saw other examples in African countries, that's the argument, and he wanted to be different. Let's say that, the, I, I don't know, I'm just using that because I've had it so many times. You still have to deal with bread and butter issues. You still have to deal with psychological issues of what it means to go through apartheid and repression. You have to deal with cultural issues of what it means to be black, to hate yourself, to put light skin on your face because for so many centuries you are told, and they still do it in South Africa now, where people remove their, their dark skin, to their, you know, they go through. So you have to deal with, so it's a, it's, a, it's a big, big job to become a leader in a society that has gone through those kind of things. Much to ask for him to do that in the few years he was, he was president. I've had this question before. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll put it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, I'm using Mandela here as a metaphor also. Yes. Uh, not as the beginning, the end, the magician. And I think the problem has been that he's been the magician for too long. You know, uh, he's been our David Blaine, you know. Uh, so I think, I think one thing is you have to. Um, of course, um, the responsibility is not only on him, but he is a symbol 
of what happened during, uh, what, what happened during the transition. But you know, when you've got capital and you say to them, say apartheid is wrong. Of course they say apartheid is wrong. Of course everyone now says apartheid is wrong. We're saying it in front of Mandela, apartheid is wrong. The question then, the second question is, then how do you ensure that those who have not, who have gone through segregation and discrimination benefit now? So, so how would you do that? Because there is the question of at one side the Truth Commission, and the other side, the Truth Commission did not lead to reparations in any form, uh, which would be the, the, the logical outcome if, if you want to lift up the, 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 the victims economically and living in poverty of, of a part of the regime. Um, but you leave it in the open. This, well, Sheikha is saying, well, we can't do reparations. Where should you begin? While others are saying, well, we can only begin with reparations. Because that's the only way out. Where should the money come from from, from any other source than, than, than the rich ones who have become rich on the backs of, uh, of the black people in, during apartheid? So what's, what's, what's your position on it? After you have done so much, talked to so many people to confirm your doubts. <laughs> I think um, it's too early for me to have like a definite answer. It sounds like a cop out. I think the provocation is what's necessary. When they screened this one for the first time two weeks or three weeks ago, or even a month ago, um, on national television, and what people were saying on social networks, and people calling me and everything else, and people meeting me and saying, we have said things that we are not brave enough to say when we see them at dinner tables. You know, but I think that provocation sometimes is a form maker it's necessary. You know? Um, and of course, I would like to be the magician and have the answers to all these questions that you are, that I'm asking about, but I, I'm not. Um, you know, you, I had a, um, I have a memory of, of um, you know, years ago they had a, when they, when the LA riots started, and Rodney King had been beaten up, and all of a sudden the cops, and CNN went to Spike Lee and said, Spike Lee. What should happen? Hang on, stay down. Yes. And they said to Spike Lee, what should happen? And I was very surprised. How should he know? You know? Uh, he's a filmmaker. Of course he can talk from a position of being black and African-American possibilities, but I don't think I've got the answers to some of the questions I make films about. But I think the provocation, I think the idea that one creates a dialogue, that one looks at Mandela, not as a, and I'm not because I've had this also that is pessimistic, like you were saying at the beginning, and everything else. I don't think the film is actually pessimistic. I think it's a, a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale yeah. of what happens if you don't listen to the ground. Because but you had your cautionary tale with, with this phrase, uh, we are living on a time bomb. What do you mean by that? I mean that every society where people have been marginalized, where the majority is marginalized or people are marginalized and they feel, you know, when you see, for example, um, I just finished a fiction film and you go into some of the communities, and it's based on a true story, where the father, the grandfather was in prison. The father was in prison. The son was in prison. The grandson will probably end up in prison. And not for political reasons, because these are societies that are marginalized 
where there's poverty, there. yes. And you see a mother or a grandmother who has worked as a helper or what they used to call a maid in South Africa for this family. And the daughter worked in the same family cleaning up their house. And the granddaughter does the same thing too. Three, four generations. Is that acceptable? Is it acceptable? I was saying to someone this. Think about Germany. Think about if one day you go to Germany, the, uh, the Germans have political power, but every business from BMW and everything else is owned by Turkish people. All the hotels are owned by Turkish people. But the people who are cleaning the streets are German. The people who are waiters are German. That's ridiculous. Why should it happen in South Africa? It's a ridiculous proposition. Why should generations and centuries that black South Africans should continue to accept this abnormal situation. And this is why I'm saying we're living in a time bomb. Because, and you see, even with the university students now protesting, saying, you know, fees must fall, roads must fall, which are symbols. And I'm just saying that it's impossible. You know, uh, no self-loving society community would accept that as a proposition. Not in Holland, you would never accept it. If the Sudanese were doing the same thing and you guys were cleaning up the bathrooms and they do whatever, you know, why should we agree? To happen one So, could I say that um, the reconciliation and the lack of justice gave birth to a new form of apartheid that's uh, still working today? I think that's very dramatic. But you know the thing about it is that the economic apartheid. Yeah, I mean there are two there are two things. One is that you ignore it and then it happens on its own, which is I think um, uh, you know that's young people are saying we are tired of this, that we can never live in the society that's so unequal that we cannot live in a society that's unjust. And we have some of the highest number of protests in the world in South Africa, you know. So, you know, there is something, of course, service delivery, students, young people, and the age is becoming less and less. So, and, and I support the students, you know. Um, so I think, I think somehow, these new voices that are coming out of young people who are coming up with ideas who are saying education should be free, the symbols of apartheid colonialism should fall. I think perhaps that's where hope is, and we should be listening to them more. Yeah. Good, thank you. Well, uh, I would like to take the last uh, about 10 minutes to, to give you the possibility to ask questions. There's somebody with a microphone. Yes, it's there. So if, if you raise your hand. Yes. And yeah, perhaps please stand up because it's difficult for okay. our me to see you speaking. Yes. Uh, you said something uh, very beautiful like in the beginning of the film. I don't know if I phrased it right, but it was something like, uh, "What do we remember? What do we forget?" Uh, and then you said, "Who decides?" Can you say something more about that last question? Who decides? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a situation like South Africa, I think the political elite decide, you know, and they also misuse history. Because one of the things that's fascinating things is that 
when we <coughs> had um, electricity problems in South Africa recently, I think a year or two years ago, I don't remember, we still have sometimes. And they asked the president, they said, so what do we do, you know, what, the, what are the options? And he said, blame it on apartheid. So on one hand, he's right, but on the other hand, it's an acceptable answer. Do you, know, you blame it on Mandela? No. no. But, but I'm just saying, um, um, but, but, but the issue here is that we, people's stories and scars, because we just, it's 1994, you know, the first democratic election, the scars are still raw. They are there. People's anger is still there. People's emotions are still there. The tombstones are there. Some are not even there directed. You know, the graves are there. You know, the pain and the tragedy is there every day. So somehow, that narrative of people who have gone through all that pain and tragedy has to be remembered and has to matter. And sometimes I feel like in South Africa, it doesn't really matter because we are afraid of offending people. We want to be the most forgiving nation. And yet, the people who have gone through this pain, the scars, which both <coughs> physically and metaphorically, their story, their narrative, we have to say, we're interested in your stories. We're going to tell those stories in terms of form. We're going to tell those, we're going to let listen to you. We're gonna, you're going to shape where the country is going. And we don't listen often because we are trying to have a political settlement rather than listening to people. Thank you. Well, maybe the last question. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Carol. This is the second, maybe the third time I'm seeing the film, and I have to come back again because the film is so rich, and you've managed to capture the complexity so well of the whole post-apartheid situation and also human, the human situation. I have two questions, actually, because uh, I also fell into this trap of Mandela being this superhero. It was very relieved with this big image of Mandela till the moment, and what you said, and then people said in the film that Mandela accepted to be a symbol and he continued to live as if he was a symbol. It probably was a deal. Some people mentioned that it was probably a deal before he was released for him to accept that role and to stick to that role, actually. So did you have any, did you investigate and find out exactly what happened before he left prison so that you can understand more why this blockage happened in South Africa and why things really apparently changed but didn't change? This is the first question. And the second question is more like a filmmaking question. Uh, the, the way you structure the film. Uh, at one point when the whole complexity of the question is raised, can you forgive uh, people when they haven't themselves didn't even, uh, express the willing to, to, to confess what they, they sins, and then you came, came back again into the place that is almost what was happening in the beginning. But that's the beginning of what your thought also came from to me the current situation. So this structure that you put forward, maybe you answered it a little bit because you kept his character, very strong character, with a few that compromised to the end, but I really want to 
understand what at the end you want us to leave the film, the cinema with, because the question that you raise, that the question that the film raises at one point was there, and we really, I was happy to go out with that question, and then you come back again to the South African particular situation, so why did you... Okay, that's your second question. Again, how, with what kind of thought do you want us to leave? <laughs> After watching your film, we, we have to... Yeah, so uh, that, there are two things I'm going to try to be brief. One is the fact that I had this when I was making the film, that even before then, that you know, uh, Nelson Mandela had done it in at prison. You know, thing is, there was no proof. And I didn't want to make an investigative journalistic film. Um, and I didn't want to be unfair on him. And also, I wanted to keep it on the level of this hero that has lived in my imagination with all his beauty, all his doubts, my own doubts. You know, and I've also felt one critical thing that the story of Nelson Mandela has also been the story that the West has told to the West and to Africans and to us. And that I wanted to sort of contest that space. Um, so, in the end, when, when I didn't get any evidence whatsoever, and it was just rumors, I left it. Like other questions also that came, which were rumors, and I left them out. Um, um, the second question is that I felt that at the end, I finished the form, and the three young people were not in the form, actually that you see, the ones who talk about Mandela. I'd finished it, and we sort of almost wrapped. And I woke up one day, I said, the problem with this film is, it doesn't have a voice of today, and it doesn't have a voice of people who have grown up after me. You know, what they call some, in South Africa sometimes, the born friends, you know. And so I wanted to have that voice. Um, and, and that's what happened. And I, I couldn't find an end, actually, I must be honest with you. Now that I've done it so many years, I can confess that, that I was struggling with the end. And I was like, is the end Nelson Mandela and how I feel? Or is the end the country and the impact of what I think his ideas are? So what you see was my own struggle, which I think your question is completely relevant because it also shows my own struggle of trying to link him and the present and the future. Yes? You can leave your, the, the room now satisfied? <laughs> yeah, you can ask me outside. I'll spend another 10 minutes. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, once again, Carlo Mandelbaum. <laughs>